Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Eruvin, daf kaf vav, page 26. Now, in our efforts to bring you terminology that is relevant to Masachet Eruvin as its own category of things that we discuss, right? Just the terms that we know that we're talking about. We realize that we have been talking about a karpeif now for days and days, and we hadn't ever stopped to actually define it as its own term. I think we kind of went over all of the different details, but hopefully if we can now come up with a straight up definition, then, you know, whatever you've been thinking in your heads will kind of hopefully will streamline or clarify, or maybe you don't need it. And it's just for the record. Um, okay. A carpef, And here's the tricky thing, right? The carpef is an area that it has to have a certain amount of, a certain amount of diameter, um, you know, area, a certain amount of area, which, is not used for resident it's not used to live on anyway right meaning it's it's might be located near right but it's not it's it's not where you put the house so you're not allowed to carry in a carpef even if it's otherwise within a rishuri yachid theoretically if you had you know halachic walls around it whatever you had gave it a tzuratapetach whatever but it's until you really establish it to have a uh, to make it part of a private domain of its own right, then it remains, you know, non-residential and therefore, by definition, a place where you cannot carry it. So what happens if you want it to become a part of, you know, a place of residential residential area, you need to have a wall that will then be surrounding it, right? Or some kind of wall. It doesn't have to be, this is what we've been talking about all the way along, right? It doesn't have to be a full wall. But it has to have the terms of whatever different conditions to make sure that that carpef area is now designated, recognizable as a carpef. It's an area that you could not otherwise carry within it. But the moment you make it into, um, the moment you make it into uh, where you provide an area for it, then you end up being able to carry there. So you either set up your machitzot there or you set up your tzuratapetach, right? And so now that karpef is no longer just non-residential because in doing so, you're kind of including it now in the area that is part of the, basically part of the home. Um, you know, you end up putting the karpef within the eruv and then it becomes something that you can, or you put a, set up an eruv around it rather, and then you can end up carrying there. So... It's a complicated topic, right? It's been going on for days. We've been talking about it. It's not just a straight one-line definition, but hopefully understanding that this is something that is not where a home is, but it's near enough to where a home is that you might have reason to want to carry there. And so then the way to do it is really with a much more, and this we have been talking about, a much more physical um, enclosure as a, as compared to simply a lechi and a, and a kora. I, I think what's important here is that... Um, what we're seeing Chazal do is, you know, on the one hand, they want to give flexibility and allow people to carry. And the Karpaf is really basically sort of a Rishu Sayachid. On the other hand, they have a concern that if people sort of get used to walk carrying within the Karpaf, then they're going to sort of forget about that you can't really carry in the Rishu Sayachid. And so therefore, they sort of make us have to be very deliberate in sort of fixing that area, or at least making it that it's small and not too large, um, to allow something that really is technically completely per permissible, do raisa, 
Um, but, you know, Chazal sort of steps in to say, well, we're going to sort of, you know, put these requirements in place because we just want to make sure it never gets confused with the Rishus HaRabim and that people sort of don't get used to like, you know, just carrying in a force because you can just carry in a force. Um, so it, it's it's a very interesting halachic category. Um, and actually in terms of Hilchot Eruvin and practicality, it has a lot of, uh, you know, uh, practical pieces to it in terms of, you know, what does it mean about a park or a garden or a forest that's in a residential area? Like all of these types of areas, that's kind of how you should think about the car pave. Yeah, good. I think I think that um, establishes also the significance of what this area might be. And we've seen, right, what happens if you want to put a roof over it, right? Then is that enough? Is that not enough? What if you set up brushes around the outside of it, right? We've definitely seen different cases where the very identity of the Karpev can get complicated. Uh, for sure. Um, I want to move on to something else that I thought was interesting on this staff. We started with a story yesterday that was taking place um, in this Karpev that was next to uh, the house of the Reish Galuta. And we had the Rav Huna had this whole solution to it by putting these reeds up and they made him take the reeds down. Um, and they said they weren't actually allowed to carry there. Um, and you know, there was sort of this whole back and forth. And then on our DAP, that back and forth continues um, uh, where, you know, now they get into discussion of how do you determine an old city versus a new city and when the walls were built and when it was settled. Um, and again, there's this whole, you know, back and forth that takes place here. And finally, you know, when this whole thing uh, gets resolved, um, the, the Gemara tells us the following observation. Right. When this whole thing was, you know, discussed to the fulls that it needed to be discussed, the Reish Galuta said the following. And here the Reish Galuta is quoting a pasuk from Yermiahu, Paragdal Petzl where it says, Right. They, they, they are wise, the Chachamim, to do evil, but to do good, they don't have knowledge. And I think here what the Reish Galuta is basically saying it's not something complimentary, but he's sort of saying like, you guys sort of messed up my Shabbos plans. And then what did you do afterwards? You just sort of sat around and like, just kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, but you didn't really come up with a way to fix this and make it livable for us. And I think this really sort of signifies to me, at least some of this tension that we see between this political power of the house of the, you know, Rish Galuta um, versus Chazal, and that they didn't always necessarily see eye to eye. You know, we have this Rish Galuta, who is, and, and also I want to say something, I think this is very different than the, the period of the Tanayim, right? In the period of the Tanayim, the Nasi would tend to be, you know, from the line of Rav Gamliel, right? So it was like Rav Gamliel or son uh, Rabbi Shimon and sort of got past, you know, was it Rav Gamliel the first, Rav Gamliel the second, Rabbi Shimon the first, Rabbi Shimon the second, ends up with Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, and there was sort of more of this meshing between who the political power was and also that they were the Talmud Chacham at the same time. Here in Bava, we see it's sort of separate, right? We have this house of the Rish Galuta. The Rish Galuta sort of is not usually named. Um, it seems to be this place where we're seeing there's parties. And Chazal often come because, you know, politically, as we have to do, the even the, the sort of intellectual leaders still have to come to sort of interact with the political leaders. 
And here we sort of see the political leader making a comment on the intellectual leaders by sort of saying, you know, right? That, you know, they'd, you know, figured out a way that they would be allowed to carry, you know, from this pavilion into the house. And then, you know, they came, the Chazal, other rabbis come and say, no, we're not going to allow you to do this. Then, you know, they sort of spend all this time sort of discussing it and figuring out, was it the right way? Was it the wrong way? How could we solve it? But at the end of the day, they weren't allowed to carry. And so I think, you know, he's sort of making a comment on like, these discussions are all lovely and nice, but like, did you actually do good here? Did you actually help us? And did you actually fix it? Um, and it's interesting to see that the Gemara would allow this comment to be in here as well and doesn't feel like they needed to edit it out also. So, yeah, what I find fascinating here, and I agree with you 100%, this is not a complimentary statement. It's really, I think, actually a pretty severe indictment of the Chachamim, right, that the sages are not doing the right thing. But one of the things that I found interesting here is that I, I actually did what we say always we should do, and I went and I looked up the verse in your meow, right, that Pasuk, uh, it's a it's the second half or the second the final third or final fourth of the first in your mouth, Perak Dalid Posakov Bet, chapter 420, verse 22, that says as follows God is talking. And he says, I'm just going to read the English the, of the chapter of Jeremiah, for my, for the, of the verse in Jeremiah, for my people is foolish, they know me not. They are sottish children, they have no understanding. They are wise, and this is our key part, they are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. And so my understanding of the verse in context, meaning in its original place in the book of Jeremiah, is that this is God on the one hand with also a pretty, pretty severe indictment of the Jewish people and how they're not really, you know, towing the line. And on the other hand, there's there's something in this tone of like, you know, this idea that they're children, right? Banim schalim hema, v'lonevonim hema. They're not wise, they're not, they don't have understanding that that I would say is almost, you know, something paternal about it, right? I mean, I guess that's the word of children, right? And there's something, uh, with, I would say, more understanding of the fact that B'nai Israel are zhlubs in this case, right? And they end up and they end up not doing the right thing, but it's because they don't understand and they don't really know Hashem as compared to Chazal, right? Where the, where the response here in the in the Gemara, this claim of the they are chachamim heima lahara, they're so smart to do the wrong thing and to do the right thing, they don't know what they're talking about. But but these are chazal, right? Like I I feel like it's like a big slap in the face, and there it is on the pages of the Gemara, and and so that's you know we always talk about how our biblical heroes are not um, they're not heroified, right? We see their flaws, and I am intrigued by the fact that I would say that. One of the things that we have noted throughout this Dafyomi project is that now and again we see the flaws also of Chazal, and the Gemara does not particularly whitewash them. Maybe now and again, but but not like this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think you know again, Anne, you made the right point of that. You really need to look the pasuk up also, um, and it does have a different context in Yirmiyahu, and it's interesting to see how the Reish Galuta sort of twists it a little bit for his purposes here. Yeah, I think I think he's allowed, right? I mean, we do even nowadays. Well, we we can remove things from context, and and they take on a life of their own. I don't think that that's a problem. I just think it's an interesting backdrop that it it kind of heightens to me. It heightens how harsh it is because it isn't the original use. Okay, I want to go on 
and talk about something else that happens on this stuff. Um, it happens in two different ways, uh, I think. I think you can all you know, chime in, correct me if you think I should be corrected. Um, here's what happens. On the, towards the bottom of Ahmed Aleph, we have a discussion of the phenomenon of, we've discussed this in the past, of a courtyard where everybody kind of joins in to make the Eruv. And then the question is, what happens if one of the people forgot and did, or forgot for whatever reason they didn't join in to make the Eruv? He didn't participate in the Eruv. What's going to happen? So now he's not allowed to carry from his house out into the courtyard. But remember, we've talked about how the physical construction here is that that courtyard is kind of the extension of the house without it actually being an extension of the house unless you make the Eruv. So what happens here? So the question is the 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 question is what do you do? How can this family, you know, whether an individual or a family, where they have not participated in the Eruv, what can they do to make sure that they can have access to their courtyard? So the commentators explain that really what you have to do here, what he what the owner has to do here, is to cede his ownership. He gives up his share, not of his house, but of the courtyard. Right? Meaning, so let's say we've got five five little houses on a courtyard, and and four of them participate in an Eruv. And all four of them now have extended their homes into this courtyard, and one did not. So what happens is that all well, five of them have a share, basically, in that courtyard. Except for that if he gets rid of or gives up his, his right to that share in the courtyard, well, now only four of the homes have that ownership of the courtyard and all four of them have made the Eruv. So all four of them have made it a place that you can carry and now they can allow their neighbor, number five, who did not participate for whatever reason, to also carry in that courtyard. So this idea of he can kind of like relinquish his ownership or his rights to carry his rights to be, I guess, in the courtyard of his own right. He can only then be there as a guest of the others and then that becomes acceptable. So that's what happens on um, Kafav Daf 26, Ahmed Aleph. And then we have another comparable eye to me, to my eyes, maybe because we're learning the Daf relatively quickly. It, it's a comparable situation on Ahmed Bet. On Ahmed Bet, what happens is, again, we've got a case here of actually of five people who live in the same courtyard, and one of them forgot to join the heir of the other. So the Gemara says here, Amar Achava, Anav Ravuna, Barchina, Natir Gamana, Lon Yitzrucha, Elala so one of them doesn't join into the Erev. So what's going to happen? So now he has to cede his ownership, right? So that his family or just himself can have access from the house to the courtyard to do whatever carrying they need to do. So the statement of Rebbe Lezer, now this is higher up on the daf, um, we have a statement about Rebbe Lezer who renounced his authority over his share of the courtyard. No, I'm sorry. Rabbi Lezer says that one who renounces his share of the courtyard, what does he have to do? He needs to go. He, um, according to Rabbi Lezer, he says he's not just re- renouncing his share of the courtyard, but also over his house. Right? I said before, he doesn't have to do it over his house, but Rabbi Lezer says he does have to do it over his house. And the Chachamim, the Rabbanan say, no, you can renounce your share of the ha- of the courtyard to the other residents. You give it over to them, but you do not re- renounce your authority over your own house. So that's where we're. That's the 
kind of case that we're talking about. So the question is, what happens under the authority of Rabbi Eliezer, where he says you should have to renounce the authority of your own house to be able to carry, meaning you have to be a complete and full um, guest throughout, you know, in this whole entire area, including your own home, right? So, um, so what he has, so then the question is, does he have to go to each and every one of them to ask to 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 do this renouncing? So according to Rebbe he does not have to go to each of the other four homes and say, "I am hereby renouncing my." Right to carry or ownership, whatever. It's not about carrying, it's really about ownership in the courtyard. He doesn't have to go to each and every one of them, right? Because he has, he's already giving up his own house, so then it doesn't matter. But <laughs> but according to the Rabbanim, who said he's, he keeps his house, right? He has to go and renounce to each one of them and and make it clear, I guess, that he is you know, in debt to them to allow him to be their guest, meaning their collective guest, but each one all, you know, each one along the way. So to me, these two cases, meaning on the Ahmed Aleph case and the Ahmed Bet case, in terms of the degree to which a person can then, like, you know, give up your authority so that you can then have access to the courtyard, it, it seems to be very much the same thing, even though it's presented a little bit differently in, in a little bit different vocabulary. Um, but I, I think it's really all talking about the same thing. And I happen to find this idea, you know, if Eruv is a loophole to protect people's, you know, jobs experience so that they can carry, I would say this idea that you can then have this loophole that enables the person who did not make the Eruv, but in the case that there is an Eruv, that person can get out of his own obligation to make up his own Eruv by, you know, relinquishing his, his rights to the property. And now he can carry again. I find the whole the whole of it um, both, you know, rabbinically very creative, and presumably again very real, very necessary, um, and a little surprising, you know, as opposed to saying, "Well, too bad for you, stay in your house." They don't say that. Look, I think this is also though what's frustrating about this topic is it seems it's like loophole after loophole, and I think it's you know how you want to view it. I see a lot of creativity on this page, um, and. I think it's Chazal really having to figure out, like, we need to make Shabbos livable. Um, Hotza seems to be the one area that maybe makes it the least livable for people. And so, you know, it's... What I'm teasing out over these Tapim, and I mentioned this again yesterday, because this seems to me to be the theme over these first 20-something pages we've done, is um, it's loophole after loophole, but it's so less theoretical than than like what Shabbat was. And so I guess you're taking one or the other. In other words, you can have a masacha that's dealing with a, a area of halakha where pushing the limits is talking about, about the most theoretical, un, impossible case to happen and seeing how does that fit in the halakhic framework. A ruven is all practical, but therefore the boundaries have to do with what loopholes can we create so that this is a, a livable set of laws. It also, you know, provokes me to wonder about, we've talked about this, that the number of people within orthodoxy, whatever, who don't use an Eruv, meaning who on principle and heritage do not use an Eruv. I keep wondering, like, what, I mean, nowadays where, you know, there's plenty of places in the world where there is no Eruv and we manage. 
But I'm curious about what would those same people have done in a setup where half of your living is really outside of your home in the courtyard? And I'm not sure that that kind of chumrah, that that kind of stringency to not allow that loophole was actually in play until long after that was no longer the way homes were set up. So maybe it becomes easier to be more stringent actually in the modern era, era than it was in the Talmudic era when, when the homes were exactly needing this. That's a great question and one that I'm going to have to actually really think about. And I think we should keep in the, in our minds as we continue, because uh, we're really still really only at the beginning, I guess we're a quarter of a way done, almost a quarter of a way done. Well, I want to point out that we are finished now with Perak Bet. Yeah. And we are finished with Perak Bet. We're getting there. We're moving along. That's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about some of these scenarios and the Rish Galuta's comments on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.